Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi everyone. Uh, we're back for another week. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, this is Lindsay Baker and Kira Gould. And we are here on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Um, back for another week. It is very gloomy and cold here in Oakland right now. And <laughs> I'm so happy to be with you, Kira. <laughs> nice to be with you. And I'm not, I'm not sure we're allowed to talk about the weather when we're in California in the summer because the rest of the country is hot. It gets definitely it definitely confuses people, you know, for us to be, but I mean, it's legitimately right now it's about 65 degrees in my apartment, which means it's colder outside, but also that's just sort of what happens if you've been in the Bay area, you know, it's like the, the issue is not so much that it's cold outside in some profound way. It's that our homes don't have the ability to warm up. <laughs> so that's right. Yeah. I'm sitting here like with my little heating pad um in, and it's whatever it is the middle of august it's kind of right yeah it, it's pretty it's that, that's just what we do here and and it, it's wonderful in many times of the year <laughs> indeed indeed we're lucky in many ways yeah how are you what's going on i'm good i'm you know um there's a lot it feels like the news is i don't know you kind of want there to be a slowdown in the summer a little bit and I just I know because of the pandemic and the election and everything else that's not happening at all um it feels like there's a lot going on some of it good and some of it not so good but there's a lot a lot of things flowing around right now um how are you uh, I'm pretty good. I, I managed to get outside. We, we went um, away for a couple of days. It was the first time we've really been away from our home since the pandemic started. And it felt just weirdly and profoundly good to be in another structure. <laughs> yep. not my home. And uh, yeah, we just got back yesterday afternoon and and it's good. It reminds you of the things that you appreciate about your own home, like in my case, good internet. Um, I'm, <laughs> for. I'm not sure we could do the podcast without it. So that's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, doing well and um, working and feeling, you know, generally productive. I mean, it's still just impossible every day to get your head around all of the tragedy and all the things that are happening uh, around us. I, you know, I mean, we've talked about this. I feel kind of like for me, the important thing is that I feel like I'm working on it, that I feel like I'm contributing to so, yep. like in some way to to the world, getting out of this better than than it was before. And yeah, as long as I'm doing that, and as long as I'm able to take some time every day to sign the petitions that I sign or whatever it is, yep. and, you know, listen, learn about local people running for office, then I, I feel like, you know, I can sleep at night. Um, Absolutely. I totally agree. I've been thinking a lot about voter suppression and things like that and, you know, doing the postcards and all of that kind of stuff. So I think it's just steps forward. That's what we can do. And I, I, I am, I continue to be inspired by 
that the steps that many people are taking. You know, there are things happening, and then and and now the pandemic has been going on long enough that we're starting to see patterns and understand what some of this might mean. And some of that is surprisingly encouraging as well. <laughs> so there's like there are bright spots. Um, I I heard a piece the other day on marketplace that a couple of economists had done a study about um, investing patterns over the pandemic months. Mm -hmm. And um, despite predictions that social investing might actually plummet, um, funds, ESG funds um, have been performing extraordinarily well during the mm -hmm. pandemic, um, leading these two economists to conclude that investors are viewing sustainability as a necessity rather than a luxury good, which is fascinating. And, you know, potentially, yes. I, I mean, it may be a positive indicator. That was really uplifting to me. Yeah, um, I saw and, that. I saw some ahead. stuff on that as well, the ESG investing stuff. Yeah. And I'm similarly really heartened to see it. Um, and I've, I've read a couple articles where people are trying to make sense of why it is that ESG investing, environmental, social, and governance is the acronym yes. there. But Thank it's you. basically... <laughs> you know, people investing in specific funds and mechanisms that the stock market has created that designate that, you know, certain stocks are companies that have better practices in environmental impact, social impact, and uh, good governance. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm thrilled because I happen to have been a very early and staunch adopter of these types of things. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that my retirement is doing pretty good. But, but no, it's just also, it's so, um, what, what I actually like about it is that no one really, it's not like something you can explain away entirely, that mm -hmm. the, the idea that during a pandemic, investors would decide that this was a good way to go. But I, I think it's very, I, I think it's amazing. And I also think it, it, it starts to uh, mean a certain thing, a certain set of things for how we think about how real estate fits into that. Um, because there yeah, is yeah. a lot of interest in real estate and ESG investing and making sure that, you know, particular real estate assets or companies can be seen as good ESG investments for a good reason. And I just hope it becomes the legitimate, you know, factor that it should be uh, yeah. for how we make decisions in real estate. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's an, another good thing I was I've been involved with a little bit this week, um, which is that nearly 700 building sector leaders signed a petition and sent it to the World Health Organization, urging them to consider elevating buildings as a key part of the fight against COVID-19. A whole bunch of big organizations also signed on um, un, uh, the Union of International Architects, ASHRAE, IWBI, ILFI, others. Um, so I thought that was interesting and again, trying to sort of, you know, codify the role of buildings in health, which to me, you know, to many of us, um, it seems appropriate yeah. and lo has long seemed that way, but to really get that formalized and understood. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, and I'm starting to notice I think some of our colleagues who work more in this realm of health, including uh, my friend Joe Allen at Harvard, mm -hmm. are, are frustrated oftentimes that they that they don't feel like it's making the headlines as much. Um, and and I you know I really hope it does continue to get more attention in the collective consciousness that 
ventilation really matters, <laughs> you know, these kinds of things. Um, and he, like, they've done some great work on schools opening. I think we talked about that last week. Mm -hmm. um, but in any case, yes. it's, it, it's just an incredible, it, it feels to me like they are putting a lot of work in, but I hear sometimes in the tones of their tweets and things like, you know, that the, there's not a lot of attention being given to the fact that part of the solution, part of what makes people safe, part of what makes people unsafe is the question of your your building. And yep. in particular, it's ventilation. Um, yeah, I, I hope it gets more attention. And that was, it was a cool thing to see that that letter had been sent. I was, I signed it. I was excited. Good. I'm happy yeah. to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like we were doing our job then, getting the word yeah. out. <laughs> Got to sign the things, man. Sign the things. These are these are important. Uh, this is how we this is how we participate in our in our global and local communities. So yeah, sign exactly. Lots of things. I'm excited for that, and I was happy to hear that so many great organizations had had put their names behind it, not just uh, individuals. That, that seems mm -hmm. important. Yeah, good progress, right? Be on uh, that deserves being celebrated. Um, I think so. I think so. Yeah. The link, you know, the the health and building link um, movement on that front, which is relevant to our guest today as well. Exactly. Let's introduce our guest. So our guest today is Liz York. Hey, Liz. Hi. How are you guys doing today? Doing all right. Getting by. Uh, it is great to have you. Thanks for being here. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you, Lindsay, and thank you, Kira. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, let me just give a little background. Liz is the Senior Advisor for Buildings and Facilities Strategy and Innovation at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. She's been with the CDC for 20 years, and she was its first Chief Sustainability Officer. Liz is an architect, she's a fellow of the AIA, and she has spearheaded some incredible projects, including FitWell, which is a certification program for healthy buildings, and she can tell us more about that. So um, welcome, and Liz, let me just kick off and, and ask you to tell us about how and why you became an architect, if you don't mind starting there. No, that's a, that's a great question, um, Kira, thank you. Well, it's kind of funny, you know, we all make decisions when we're very young that stick with us a lifetime. And the decision I was trying to, to make was, do I go pre-law and, you know, go to, um, it was actually Furman University, or do I go to Georgia Tech and uh, study architecture? And I was really having a difficult time deciding between the two. And so I started to um, identify what my motivation was for each of those, those pathways. And, um, you know, my motivation for going into law was, um, well, for going into architecture was that um, I liked math, I liked art, um, I enjoyed the ideas of design and space and color and form. And, you know, there was a, there was a lot there on the artistic and the, you know, the mathematics side. Um, for law, though, the reason that I wanted to be a lawyer was because I had been to a law school and was so impressed by the building. <laughs> you see where I'm going here? <laughs> it was the architecture that was influencing my life choice. And um, I started to reevaluate that maybe that wasn't the best reason to, to you know, take law as a career, but rather to take buildings as a career and to think about buildings as something that really can change a life. 
That's awesome. Um, and it's so funny that you did that analysis and came out with that you were influenced by the building itself. That's really interesting. It's pretty funny. <laughs> well, I mean, you've had a, what some might call a, an unusual career in architecture, at least not going through firms and that sort of pathway. Um, so your perspective is, is different than many others in the profession. What, what would you tell, what do you think people should know about entering the profession? What they, should they be good at and what should they be interested in? Well, so it's, it's again, an interesting question. Um, I think that back the same time period when I was trying to decide what profess, profession to go into, one of my teachers was saying to me, Liz, you don't want to be locked up in a room drawing all day over a drafting table. And I said that, you know, I, I knew that the profession was more than that. And I would say that um, people that have this impression that architects sit in a room and draw, I mean, yes, they do, but there's so many other rich things that you can do in the profession, um, depending on what your interests are. And I, I would say that, um, number one, the best architects I know, they care about people and they're doing this to create environments for people. And so some of them focus on, like we were talking about before, light, beauty, form. Um, you know, they're, they're really into the aesthetics of the building. And that's good and positive. Beauty is important. Um, some people are really focused on um, the way the spaces function and um, the process that occurs in the spaces. That's kind of where my background has been. That's why you see uh, my background was in hotel design, um, hospital design, laboratories, even I worked on CNN Center at some point where we were trying to figure out how the videotapes have to flow through so that they get on the news at the right time. And all these kinds of ways that you approach the project, the things that are important to you, um, help make the project better. I, I would just say that if you um, are thinking about architecture and you're thinking or, or anything in real estate, um, and you're thinking about how you can take your values and improve the project based on um, based on your kind of um, the, the the glasses the the view that you look at the project through. Um, that's that's a good reason. We need lots of voices at the table in in architecture and real estate, and so um, being able to hear a lot of different voices and um, help propel a design towards a final design um, by taking into account a whole lot of different um, perspectives, that would be a key um, skill for anyone going into this profession. Liz, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you found your way to the CDC. Um, so it's, it's kind of, um, I, I, had, I had been in private practice and then I had moved to the owner's side. I went to work for a little hotel firm here in Atlanta called Holiday Inn. Have you heard of them before? <laughs> Good, you laugh. That's what I always like for that. So I went to work for Holiday Inn and it was right on the heels of their purchase of Intercontinental Hotels. Mm -hmm. And um, I really wanted to work in those intercons. They were these beautiful, majestic, uh, historic properties, you know, the top of Knob Hill, the Mark Hopkins in San Francisco, um, the great hotel uh, there in Chicago on the main, the main drag. You know, these are 
the Miami Intercon, just gorgeous buildings. And I thought this is going to be so much fun and so ritzy and exciting. And then as I started to work for the company for a while, I realized that yes, I was visiting these beautiful properties and, and a lot of other properties too, but that every hotel that I was visiting was either in need of a renovation or currently under renovation. Those are not good times to be in a hotel. <laughs> so that's kind of, it's kind of the funny side of it. I, I, I realized that um, I wanted to find um, an employer that had all of their buildings in the same city. And I started looking for that and immediately, remember how they used to have newspapers. I looked in the newspaper and I found an ad for the CDC and they were they were hiring a construction manager and I love that the problem solving aspects of being a construction manager getting your feet dirty and having the hard hat on and being on the site and something comes up and you you talk through the different opportunities for the solution and then you come to one solution that kind of hits all the best positives and reduces all as many of the negatives as possible so um, I went, I, I applied for that job and I started soon after at CDC. And um, I was, an, I was, um, I did do construction management for a while, worked on our laboratories, um, making sure that designs were built per specifications and were gonna be safe for our laboratory workers. Um, and then I moved to the design side. My, my boss needed someone to step in and, and do design. I did that. And then um, the CDC started for a while, we had been doing um, sustainable projects. And in fact, as a designer, I had worked on several projects where, you know, we recycled all of our carpeting and sent it back to the manufacturer because that was what was happening at that point in time. Or we used all um, low and no VOC paints. Um, I had another project where we, uh, we collected all of our recycling and we, we collected all of the demolition of the project, all the demolition materials, and we recycled. We were so impressed. I think we recycled 86% and people just weren't recycling stuff at that point. So it was a big deal. And we were lucky to have contractors that we worked with that were helping us do this. So my point is that CDC was doing a lot of the, the right things in, as far as sustainable facilities um, for a while, but CDC decided they wanted to have someone be that chief sustainability officer and be that tip of the spear, helping the organization in all of its aspects of operations move towards a more sustainable operations. That's great, Liz. Um, and it's really interesting to hear about your path to and then within CDC. Um, and I know, I mean, you have been a leader there and also in the profession, the architecture profession more broadly. I didn't mention it in the intro, but you've also done a lot of leader, taken a lot of leadership roles at the American Institute of Architects. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you have learned as a female leader that you could share with women in our industry a little bit. So it's a great question. And I think that as a young professional, female professional, I worked in businesses where I needed to find a mentor and there were not any female mentors to look to. And so I had to learn to find um, sympathetic male mentors. And I did, I, I had a wonderful mentor um, at the architecture firm who um, he really 
coached me. He let me be involved in meetings that I didn't have anything I needed to say. So I just was learning. I was attending meetings just to learn. And then he also gave me the chance on some things to be a leader at a, you know, I'm, I'm a team member, but being a leader within that team, um, there was a convention center I worked on where I was the, I was in charge of the CAD drawings and there was something like when you put all the engineering drawings in, it was something like, you know, 400 drawings. And, you know, here I am right out of school and I'm responsible for that. And I, I would say that those kinds of opportunities, you might not think for a female leader, you might not think, oh, uh, you know, I'm just having to deal with all the dirty work or whatever. Every um, opportunity like that is a learning opportunity and it's a leadership opportunity. And what you want to do is take all of those kinds of opportunities to take to, to lead a portion of a project or a portion of an initiative and you build those into your resume and eventually you get to this point where you are leading the entire project. And that happened on the convention center. What happened is my, my boss, my mentor, he um, had a heart attack and he was, in, he was hospitalized. And the firm said, well, who's going to run this now? And they turned right to me. So now I'm three years out of school. <laughs> and um, I'm responsible for checking all the pay requests for the project, um, being the main client contact, being the main um, contact with the um, construction firm that's doing this renovation. You know, that was a $33 million project back in the 90s. That was significant. Um, and I, I think that um, it's important for anyone, male or female, look for mentors, um, take on responsibility whenever it's offered to you, um, learn and uh, get good at your craft. So um, know your stuff, do your homework. These are things I always say. Um, mm -hmm. I say it to my kids. I say it to, <laughs> to my coworkers. And then um, make sure you speak up because you may know the right answer. You may be the only person in the room. Say that again, we're talking about the table, the table full of consultants and owners and operators. They're all sitting around talking about a project or an initiative and something comes up and you're sitting there and you're thinking you know the answer, but you might be the only one in the room who does know the answer. So do know your stuff and then be willing to speak up and um, express those views or, or whatever um, expertise you have. We need you. That's, that's good advice. Yeah, that's very good advice. And yeah, I think I've, I've had to learn that one too. Liz. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a certain thing, I think, that we kind of at least for me, I've always, I've always sort of assumed that the people above me knew more than I did. And then it, I have to learn that sometimes they don't, you know, about a certain topic or something like that. Um, and it's just, yeah, it takes, takes time. It takes those experiences. And sometimes we're just feeling unconfident. And I, I, that's why I say know your stuff, because if you, if you do develop this expertise around something, it makes you feel a little more confident speaking up. Well, yeah. And so on that note, can you tell us what you're most proud of accomplishing in, in your work life? What do you have the most confidence about or what stories do you want to tell us about this? Uh, Lizzie, it's great. It's a great question. Um, I love it because I, I get to talk about the thing that I talk about all the time, which is lactation rooms. And, 
you know, it's funny. I'm a mother of three. I'm very proud of my kids. And um, they were all, um, I have a a son and then twin daughters, and they were all um, within two years of each other. So I had three kids in diapers at the same time for a period of time. And anyone who is a, is a, a mother or is close to a mother knows that it's just very hard to do this thing, to bring other people into, into the world. And while I was going through that experience, I was also hearing about how breastfeeding is best and, you know, wanting to do what was best for my child. I, I had a great support system at CDC. I had a lactation consultant. We had hospital grade pumps that were made available to us. You know, it seemed like there was no way to fail, but I found myself feeling like I was failing. Like I'm trying to go back to work and I'm not able to go to all my meetings, pump three times a day, pick up the kids, make the dinner. You know, you feel like you have all these things that you're trying to do and you're trying to go back to work and be this, this great go-getter and get, get back to the work of, and for me, it was um, architecture at the point, at that point, um, architecture for CDC. And you're just feeling so pulled in many different directions. And um, a tiny sliver of it was the fact that to pump at work, I had to leave my building, go outside, hike up a hill. It wasn't that, it was, it wasn't uphill both ways, but still um, (laughs) hike up a hill to the building that had the lactation room in it. And then that was up a set of stairs on a catwalk through on an elevator up out on the catwalk again. And it just, it was hard to do it. It was hard to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds hard to do it. And then you would get there and say, okay, so now I'm supposed to relax, right? (laughs) Right. And I have another meeting in exactly 46 minutes back at my other building. So, you know, I I, I thought there's got to be a better way. There has got to be a better way. And I said to myself, I will, I cannot fix this right now, but I will work on fixing this when I have the bandwidth. And I even kind of got in my head, you know, Women who just had babies, they cannot advocate for themselves. It's impossible. And um, they need an advocate. And I'll just wait till I get out from under the toddler years. And I'll figure, I'll figure out, at least, I'll figure out the real estate part of this, right? The building, the architecture part of the problem. Yeah. So that's what I did. I, I, it, it took till, uh, it was like... My kids were born in 2000, like one and two, no, one and three. And um, it was 2006. It was a good three, three years later that I started working on a best practice article for the AIA. And um, it's, it's still out there today. You can search for it. It's lactation rooms. I think it's, um, I, I partnered with um, Joyce Lee, another female architect, um, a couple years later to bring some, uh, she, she got some young architecture students to do some drawings and renderings of potential uh, lactation rooms. And um, she made the article better. It's out there today. You can find it by looking up wellness rooms or lactation rooms. And basically what it does is it tells you what needs to be in a lactation room, which if you think about the architecture profession at that time or where the architects that built most of the buildings that we have in the building stock, they were men and they didn't know how to 
they probably wouldn't even go into a lactation room if we had them. So, (laughs) you know, I don't think it was a matter of anybody trying to keep us from having them. I think it was just a matter of not knowing what was needed. And um, I think, you know, creating this resource, that was my way of taking what I knew and trying to share it and use my voice to share it um, with people who didn't know. And it's, it's really interesting after we, um, after we added the renderings to the document, um, we also decided to translate it into Spanish and Chinese and French. And so now it's out there as a resource for any, um, pretty much anyone around the world. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I have, I, I love the document. I had, um, I've used it many times and shared it with people many times. Just because it, it's it's one of those rare examples of a moment where you can kind of say something about the human body to architects that you know is very it's very clear it's very upfront it's very simple and it's just hard to argue with you know like these are the things that you need you need a fridge in there so you don't put your milk in the, you know, like in the snack for or whatever, like the fridge, everybody shares exactly. all these things. Like, it's just very, it's so, it's so simple and straightforward. And yeah. So thank you. I'm, I'm, I think that's a wonderful example. And I'm glad to say that I have personally followed those guidelines before. <laughs> oh, thanks, Lindsay. You know, it's funny because I'll run into people and they'll say, oh, your name came up the other day. And I'm like, oh no, what's this going to be? And they'll say, yeah, we were talking about lactation rooms. And I was like, all right, I love being in that, the sentence or that conversation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, Liz. it's really good. You know, we all, we all have things that we become passionate about. And usually we become passionate because of trials and tribulations. And that's exactly what we should take our talents and focus, focus them on is, um, yeah, turning those around, turning those into successes. It's one of your superpowers, Liz, <laughs> the lactation room. <laughs> I'm writing that down as my superpower. <laughs> yeah, it's a very good one. It's a very good one. Imagining all of the women out there that have, yeah, that have uh, benefited from that and how if they were, if they only knew that it was you, they'd be sitting there in their lactation rooms and, you know, it's yeah, like, that's true. It's true. <laughs> Well, because everyone has every, I I believe that every mother has a story about that, either a thank goodness story or a could you believe this was what it was like story like you have. (laughs) Absolutely. Kira, more and more, I run into people and when we, we get to this topic, they all have, oh, let me tell you about my story. You know, one of, one of my colleagues um, she was told that she couldn't have a lock on her office door because it was against office policy to have a lock on your door because something might happen in an office, you know, that was not, um, you know, supportive of, of you know, the equity of the organization. And she yes, like, <laughs> did on. her did her boss then explain that there would be PTSD support for the people that walked in on her? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh. <laughs> that is scarring. Oh, oh man. man. Well, um, speaking of the human body, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, Liz, about just what it means to work amongst public health professionals in your in your day to day life. I mean, obviously, we know the CDC is a <laughs> it's a I'm sure it's experiencing more um, 
like you know higher levels of stress and attention than it ever has probably it's a but busy busy place right now yes yeah <laughs> but can you tell us a little bit about what public health you know d- how that's influenced you and in your work sure i'd love to i think um at first, I, I really interacted more with people in laboratories, so more um, infectious disease public health people. Um, but over the course of the years, I've also um, gotten to know public health people that write the messaging. You know, when you're at the airport and you see that sign that says Zika, follow these guidelines. We have teams of people that work on that so that the communication is really clear. And they can't, you know, they can say some things and they can't say some things and we have clearance processes and it's very stringent and, you know, they, they're very dedicated to getting it right. I've also had the opportunity to work with people in the chronic disease center. These are people looking at things like obesity and overweight, um, diabetes and heart disease and stroke. And the things that, um, that they're focused on are very closely aligned with building and the real estate sector. In fact, there's one nutritionist over in the Chronic Disease Center that I work with quite a bit, Dr. Joel Kimmons. He is um, very knowledgeable about this this, um, kind of intersection between buildings and health. And um, often he will call me and ask me a building question or I will call him and ask him a, a health question. And that's the kind of interaction that is really gonna make both sides of that equation stronger. I I feel like the more I've known and worked with public health people, then the more I've understood what they're trying to um, mitigate. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally, I get that. It's such an important thing just to witness just how how that work gets done. I think there's so much to learn from it. yeah. Well, and, and the other the other thing I will notice uh, or I'll mention is that the more you're around someone in a different field, then the more you start to take on some of their values and their you champion their causes. And that's also what I've seen is the more that I understand the nutrition um, paradigm, the more that I understand that obesity isn't just about obesity, but it's also about diabetes and stroke and mental illness, which all are tightly wound into obesity. Then I understand that when we're trying to make a building that's healthier, it can be about mental health and that can help with, you know, another underlying condition, or it can be about physical health, like physical activity, and that can help with mental issues, or it can be about light and access to nature, and that that can actually help people be more active. So um, there's a lot that we don't know, and the more that we interact with these other experts, um, the the broader our look at our role can be. Totally. Yeah, I love that. I think I think there's a lot there, but just that idea, we haven't always been great in the architectural world dealing with sort of the holistic health um, and I'm glad to know that you have that community and and can influence us all through that work um, it actually brings me to our next question for you it's sort of about progress and how you think we're doing as a movement working on you know getting buildings to be more sustainable but I, I like to just ask sort of where did you think we would be in 2020 
as as a movement as a as a green building industry that kind of thing and do you think we're doing well do you think there are areas that we need to get better at that kind of thing so i remember sustainability from the 1980s we were talking about it in school and to think okay well where are we going to be in 2020 i don't think i ever thought we would be done in fact it's funny when i started doing sustainability for cdc in 2008 we did a strategic plan and identified all the all the things that cdc needed to do and um, after a couple of years i had um, a staff member going through the plan and seeing how we're doing and she said, oh no, we're gonna work ourselves out of a job. <laughs> and I said, no, we'll just keep moving the measuring stick. And that's really the truth of the matter. Um, I think we've seen that with instruments like LEED. They started out at a certain level and it's about creating awareness. And as more awareness developed, then benchmarks could move up to be um, at a level that was you know, a little bit higher than the minimum. I think that's what we're going to be doing constantly and where we are. I, I think that we are making progress in that there are many more, many more tables that I'm sitting around where people are talking about all of these different things at once. So um, I, I subscribe to this um, idea of the triple bottom line. So you have people, planet and pocketbook. So um, people plan a pocketbook and you need to be talking about all three of these things together. And that's where um, that's where I've seen us making progress is that more often I'll sit at a table and people will say, okay, is this going to save us money? Well, they've been saying that forever. And now they're saying, well, how does it, how does it work for our people? Is this going to be um, a positive for health of the occupants? Is this going to make the people that have to maintain the space? Is it going to be good for their um, ability to maintain it? Um, and then they also are asking, is this going to be um, the materials that we're using, the um, manufacturing process? Are we, are we thinking about equity um, with the materials that we're selecting? Are we thinking about you know, local economies with the way that we're building our building? These are the kinds of conversations that are starting to happen on many, many more of the projects that I'm being, that I'm involved with. And that's wonderful. That's great progress. Yeah, that does feel like great progress. That's, and, and, and I think that's a great way of phrasing it also, um, that these kinds of questions have been opened up in a way, you know, sort of building on the past work that we've done as a movement. Liz, we have a couple of more questions, but um, I, I just want to squeeze one in here if I can, because I think this is something that a lot of people are coming up against. I wondered if you can talk a little bit about how you balance the emphasis of health in a building and then carbon. I mean, and I'm talking operational and embodied, but just carbon as a consideration. I mean, I understand that you have to balance all these many different considerations, but those two in particular sometimes compete a little bit. And I thought maybe you could enlighten us about how you balance that. Yeah, I think um, it's, a, it's a question that comes up all the time. And um, balance is exactly the name of the game because you can't have everything 
you can't have everything all the time exactly the way you want, right? So then you start to look at um, which of these processes, which, which of these outcomes has co-benefits for both health and carbon? Um, because they do. Uh, when, when you, um, for example, when you um, improve active transportation infrastructure, so you have bike racks that are covered, you have showers, you have uh, support for cyclists to, to ride their bikes to work, then you're also reducing um, the carbon emissions in the air from vehicles not driving on the roads. And when you're doing that, you're, um, you're increasing the opportunity for the public's health because now you have fewer people dealing with um, this asthmatic kind of air that is, is um, caused by that vehicular traffic. And then you have fewer people going to the hospital, which means now we don't need to have as many hospitals or as much um, activity going on in hospitals. So that again, reduces the amount of energy being put into that system. Um, and that's your power plants and, you know, more emissions. So instead of looking tightly at just this issue that we're, we're talking about today, this issue in this building, we have to kind of broaden our look at the whole, the whole strategic, um, uh, you know, universe of, of what we're talking about. And sometimes at the small scale, carbon's going to win. Sometimes at the small scale, health needs to win. And um, what we need to share with everyone that's in the conversation is, yes, health is winning here, but it also improves carbon. And mm -hmm. so when you can take the, that framing and help people understand that a win on this side of the table is also a win for the other side of the table, then I think you get, um, you'll get some more collaboration and you'll have people um, start to be more, I don't know, creative with the way that they're, they're looking at problems. I don't know if that really answers the it question, does. but. No, it does, Liz. That's a great, it's a systems thinking answer, which I love. Um, and I wanted to, the last question we don't want to miss is um, we really do like to ask our guests who they are most inspired by these days. And it oh, can be it's, anyone. It's a great question. I, I, there are lots of people I'm inspired by. Um, I, I think I would say that if I could only give one answer, I would say Ellen Dunham Jones, who's a professor of architecture at Georgia Tech. She's, um, she's been looking at um, our, our suburbs and our waning building types like strip malls and she has been, and, and other people like her, have been looking at this idea of retrofitting our buildings for their next use mm -hmm. and in sustainability and, and in the real estate, um, the real estate sector and for architects, we have got to address uh, renovation as a, you know, a key area, both for business and for social equity um, and health. And I, I see the work she's doing to try to codify, to, to look at the success stories around the nation, around the world as, um, as good examples of how we can take a look at what's already there and start to imagine it in its next life instead of just saying, oh, well, we just need to, um, we need to raise all of that and, you know, start over. That's a great, that's a wonderful place to end, um, obviously. You have a couple of people here who think existing buildings are a hugely important topic that um, we need to be giving a lot more attention to. So thank you. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Thanks so much, Liz. And, and it's also just nice to 
be reminded of of um, of that work. I'm I'm a fan of hers as well, and and there's all sorts of work that needs to be done on building a better future. So yeah, thanks for being with us, Liz. This has been awesome. It has been great for me too. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. And with that, that's that's it for us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.